0: As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, one thing we have asked of you and that we will continue to seek after, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty and to inquire in your temple. So hear us, O Lord, as we call to you. Be gracious to us and answer us, for you have said, seek my face, and our hearts say to you now, Lord, your face do we seek. Please do not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark. And we've come to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. If you're following along on one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on many of them at page 1077. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And so Mark chapter 10, beginning our reading at verse 35 and reading through verse 45. will be our text for this morning. So Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. One thing that we've been trying to do again and again ever since we began this section of Mark's gospel back at the end of chapter 8 is to remind ourselves that Mark has two great principles uh, in this section of the gospel. Uh, Maybe I don't even need to say them at this point. You've, You've gotten them over the weeks, but... The two great principles are who Jesus has come to be as Messiah, what it means that he is the Messiah who's come to the people of God, and what is required of those who want to follow him. Those have been the two great purposes in this text, in this section of Mark's gospel. And the section of the gospel that's before us this morning clearly teaches us these two truths. It shows us what our king is like, and it shows us what it means to be his disciple, what it means to be great in his kingdom. Um, as those who follow after him Um, that's really what this section is about it gives us a very clear picture of who Jesus is and what is required if we are to follow him and so Jesus teaches us something important about who he is as the son of man who has come to serve and to save and what is required for his disciples who follow after him and so Jesus teaches us these truths and Mark presents them to us uh, first by this dialogue about distinctions about being important in the kingdom. Um, That's how this passage begins with a dialogue about distinctions. And then the passage will show us how Jesus offers deliverance from a spirit of domination. So deliverance from domination is the second thing we see in this text. And finally, we see how Jesus teaches that distinction is found through dedication, uh, that you become great in his kingdom by dedicating yourself to a particular task and function and that's how we want to think about this passage together. A dialogue about distinctions, deliverance from domination and distinction through dedication. Um, We first see this dialogue about distinctions. James and John come seeking distinctions from Jesus. They want to enjoy distinction, they want to enjoy privilege and rank in his kingdom of glory. And so they come and say we have something to ask of you and whatever we ask you want, to, we want you to give us. Uh, now, those of you who are parents probably know that if children come to you making that kind of request, you shouldn't say yes right out of the gate. Right? You want to hear what the request is first. So maybe they kind of know that maybe this isn't the greatest thing to ask for. And maybe they kind of want a yes before they ask the question. But Jesus simply says, what do you want? What, what is it that you are asking of me? And what have they asked of him? They ask to have the two highest positions in his kingdom of glory. Grant that one of us can sit at your right and one of us can sit at your left. In a way, this is a great kindness that this is laid out for us in the scripture because we've already seen that Peter is a big failure. And now we see that James and John were big failures too. Um, all of the disciples, even the ones that had the greatest, you know, sort of inner circle access to Jesus and who saw some of the greatest things he did like raising that little girl from the dead or seeing his glory revealed in the transfiguration. Even these sort of top three disciples get it so badly wrong. Uh, What they want is to be the top two people in his kingdom of glory. That's what it is to sit at his right hand and at his left hand, to be the highest people of honor, the highest people of power in his kingdom. This request is kind of the definition of selfish ambition and rivalry. It seems to be not enough to them that they've had the privilege of being the three disciples out of 12 who've seen things that only they have seen. This request seems to indicate they want to be even higher than Peter, who is the other one of the three. It's not enough to be this sort of inner circle of three among 12. They need to be the top two Um, and maybe even ask this in such a way that it means to try to edge Peter out. Uh, but this request is really we should see it as the definition of selfish ambition and rivalry to want to have the two top positions in glory and it's particularly sad that this is on their mind given what jesus had just said remember what jesus had just said to them in verses 32 through 34 about his suffering and death that he was going to jerusalem And that the religious authorities were going to condemn him to death. And that they were going to hand him over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were going to take him and mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And having just heard that, James and John come to Jesus and say, We'd like to be top in the kingdom. It's so sad that it doesn't seem to be on their mind what the Lord is going to endure, what is coming for him in Jerusalem, that what's on their mind is being greatest. It would be sad enough if this was an isolated occurrence, but it's not. This is the second time they've done this, right? The disciples had already heard once back in chapter nine that Jesus was going to die, was going to die, be given over and suffer and die. And after he said that, and they're walking along the way, what did they talk about? Which one of us will be greatest in the kingdom? They keep coming back to that. Despite what he talks about, about what he's going to do to suffer for the kingdom, their minds seem only fixed on the glory of the kingdom, and only being on top of the glory of the kingdom. So how does Jesus respond to this request? In verse 38. By simply saying, you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. Uh, They want the crown, but they have no idea what it costs. They have no idea what they're asking for or what the price of glory really is. And Jesus tells them, what does it mean to be high and lifted up in the kingdom of glory? It means that there's a cup to drink and a baptism to endure. That that's where he is going. Both of these are metaphors of judgment. Judgment in terms of a cup to be drunk and a baptism to be endured. That's why we sang Psalm 75. It uses the cup as a picture of judgment. Right? in 70, Psalm 75 verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup Jesus is talking about here is a cup of judgment. The baptism Jesus is talking about here is a baptism of judgment. Maybe you boys and girls, you know, we've seen some baptisms lately in our church, haven't we? We've seen a baptism, and maybe when Jesus says baptism here, that's where our minds go, to the, to the baptism that we've seen, the baptism with water. Well, water really just means washing. Baptism is a symbol of a spiritual washing with water. But sometimes in the Bible, you're not just washed with water. The water washes over you. Um, you're overwhelmed by the flood. And in that sense, that can be a picture of judgment. It's a different kind of baptism. It's a washing that floods over you and threatens to drown you. It's the kind of washing that the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 42, verse 7. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Um, I am washed over by the water. Just like the cup being poured out, that can be a metaphor of judgment. That's how Jonah spoke when he was in the belly of the whale and said in Jonah 2:3: For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me and all your waves and your billows they passed over me it's a different kind of baptism it's a baptism of judgment being flooded over with judgment and Jesus is saying to his two disciples you have no idea what the glory costs you have no idea what exactly i'm going to do in jerusalem The cup that I'm going to drink and the baptism that awaits me there. What my suffering and death on the cross will mean for me that I might free my people of their sins. The question assumes a negative answer when Jesus says are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to endure the baptism that I'm going to endure? The answer assumes a negative answer. Because only he could drink that cup. Only he could endure that baptism. There's a horror that happens on the cross at Calvary that only he could endure. It's put so well in our Heidelberg Catechism, question 17. Only Jesus, by the power of his divinity, could bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath against sin and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. He's the only one who could bear the weight of that wrath, bear the the bitterness of that cup, bear the overwhelming judgment that's coming. When he says to them, are you able to do it? It expects a negative answer. No, you are not, because only he can do it. And what is their answer? Are you able to do this? We are able. We can. It shows how little they understand of what he's going to do. And so how does our Lord respond to them? How might we expect him to respond? It's always the difficulty in reading the scriptures, isn't it? We know exactly what follows. We read it. Maybe these, some of these stories we know so well, we can't really be surprised by them. And, but think about it. If you were at this point in the story, what might you expect to happen? If this was a fill-in-the-blank situation, you'd expect something of a rebuke. You know, you might expect the Lord to say, no, you're not able. That's the problem. You don't understand. But how does Jesus answer them? It's an interesting way he does, isn't it? And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, what does Jesus mean by saying this to them? Well, here again, I think we're already helped in the way that Jesus has talked because he's already said that part of following him and being his disciple is to pick up your cross and follow him. So he's already spoken about a way that we follow Jesus and a way that we are connected with Jesus that's not exactly equal to what Jesus does. Jesus bore a cross for his people. We bear crosses as his people. But they're different, right? His is a cross that saves Ours is the cross as the way of service. His is the cross that earns us salvation. Our crosses are the way by which we enter the salvation that he's earned for us. And I think Jesus is talking here the same way about this cup and this baptism. To say the cup that I will drink and the baptism that I will endure are fundamentally different. They will earn salvation for my people. But my people who follow me, they will also have to drink a cup. And they will also have to be baptized with a baptism. And it won't earn salvation the way my cup and my baptism will. But they will be the way of salvation for those who serve me. The way you enter into the salvation that he's earned. The road that we walk will be one where we will drink the cup of the sufferings of our Lord. And be baptized with the sufferings that he was baptized with. It doesn't mean it's the same for every Christian. It wasn't the same for these two brothers. Probably at the time Jesus said this to them, James would have had just a little over 10 years to live before he was martyred for the sake of Christ and his gospel when Herod executed him. Uh, That was his cup and his baptism. That's what it would be to be connected with Christ and his gospel. Um, We know that was different for John. He was the longest lived of the Apostles. As far as we know, he was not martyred. He lived to a ripe old age, so he would have decades more of faithful, fruitful service, although it would also be a suffering service to the Lord. The Lord is telling them, there is a cup that I have to drink, and it's not the cup that you drink. There's a baptism I have to be baptized with. It's not the baptism that you have to be baptized with. But all those who serve me, all those who follow me, they will carry a cross, and they will drink a cup, and they will endure a baptism. They're not disconnected but they're not the same thing. Because what our Lord does earns salvation. What we do is the way we enter the salvation that he has earned for us, the road that we're called to walk. But what Jesus is really saying to them is that's where your focus ought to be. Um, Disciples always wanna jump ahead because Jesus had said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'm gonna rise again. And they always seem fixated on the rising again part to the exclusion of everything else. That's why I think they keep coming back to greatness and glory. They just hear the resurrection part and that's all they think about. And Jesus is trying to say to them, that comes, the glory comes, it surely follows. That has to be before our eyes. But in this life, we have to be about the business of focusing on the mission that God has given us to do. Jesus is saying to them, you are gonna have a cross bear you're going to have a cup to drink you're going to have a baptism to endure and in this life that ought to be your focus don't worry about what your rank will be in glory right jesus says that's really not your business to think about that jesus said actually it's not even really my business to think about that that's the father's business to think about that and leave the father to his business is what Jesus is really saying to them. We have a task to do in service of the Father. He's saying, I have a task to do that I'm going to Jerusalem to do. You will have a task to do in this life. And you know, that's really enough for you. You don't need to be worried about, now after this life, where will I stand in the kingdom of heaven? How close will I be sitting to Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb? That's the Father's business. Don't worry about the Father's business. Worry about Your business. The Father will do all things right. You don't need to worry about where you are in glory, and you certainly don't need to be worrying about it in a way that desires to put you above other people in glory. To try to edge other people out so that you make sure you have the top spot. That's just not the spirit of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach them. That they just don't understand what's happening. They don't understand what they're saying and what they're doing. And so Jesus comes to offer them deliverance from this kind of spirit of domination. That's the second thing we really see in this passage as Jesus moves on from this topic to gather them around and to talk to them about how the kingdom of God delivers us from that spirit of domination and dominion that so operates in our world. Because we see the effects that this request has on the rest of the disciples. I mean, how could it not have this effect, right? After they've asked to have the top two spots in glory and edge everyone else of the disciples out, how do the disciples react to that? Not surprisingly, they don't react well. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're indignant that they'd be asked to have higher spots than all the rest of them. And why are they indignant? Because they all think they ought to be the greatest. So it's not as if the other ten get a pass here. They're all trying to be number one. And they're indignant because James and John have asked to be number one. And they all think they should be number one. And what Jesus does is sees all of this and says, no, this is not the way it is in the kingdom. So it means that he calls them together to say, this is not how we're going to operate in the kingdom of God. This has nothing to do with what God wants in his kingdom. In the first place, because desires like this to be number one always cause divisions. It caused division right here in the infancy of the church when all the apostles who are going to be apostles are arguing about who should be first. It's a problem that would continue to plague the church. John, when he writes 3 John in verse 9, says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. It's poison to the church when everybody is trying to put themselves first. When everyone is trying to be the top dog. It causes divisions in the church. We see that here. We see that in other places in Scripture. It causes division in the church, and it's terrible for our witness in the world. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church always produce atheism in the world. It ruins our fellowship if we're going to seek to be number one. It ruins our witness in the world if we're amongst us always seeking to be number one. Jesus says here, this is an utterly worldly spirit. It's an utterly worldly spirit to always seek to be on the top so that you can have dominion and domination over one another. In fact, Jesus puts a little punch to it when he says to them, you know, the so-called rulers of the Gentiles, they behave this way. They're always lording it over other people. They're always exercising authority. And what is the end to which they exercise that authority and that rule? Always to their own advantage. Always to their own advancement. So that they can be number one and so that other people will serve them. And it would have had a punch to them because these are exactly the kind of rulers all the disciples would have despised. Jesus essentially saying to them, This is the way a Caesar behaves. Or this is the way a Herod behaves. This is not the way a Christian behaves. If he were speaking in modern day terms, Jesus would be saying to them, you're all behaving like a bunch of congressmen. Is that what you want to be, is that what you want to be identified with, a bunch of congressmen? The kinds of people Mark Twain said are have the smallest minds and the selfishest souls and the cowardliest hearts that God makes. You're acting like the world acts. What does the world always want? To be on top, to make other people serve you. Um, That's what the world wants. As one pastor said, in the world, the higher men are, the more they're served. And what does Jesus say to this worldly ethic in verse 43? But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. That's a command, isn't it? Isn't that a command to the church? It shall not, shall not be so among you. It's a command from the king. It's interesting how Jesus refers to the rulers of the Gentiles. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. Why are they just considered rulers of the Gentiles? Who is the ruler of the Gentiles? It's the Lord who's speaking to them. He is the ruler of the Gentiles. They are the so-called rulers who always are seeking to rule and put people under them. He is the ruler and he speaks here as the ruler. This shall not be so among you. That's his command to his church. Not just to these quibbling disciples, but to us as well. This is not to be the spirit of the church. And thanks be to God, it's not just a command from the king, it's also a promise. Um, It's a command from the king, and it's a promise from the king. It will not be so among you. Uh, What is the promise the king is making here? He's making a promise first that I will not allow this to be the spirit in my kingdom. And as that kingdom has manifested itself in this world in the church, um, particularly people who want to be in places of leadership in the church need to remember that, that it's not a position of rule in the church. Um, particularly you, you men who are studying in seminary and preparing to be ministers, you need to understand that if you go into the ministry and you desire to rule in the church, you will have the king as your adversary. He will not tolerate you to behave like a ruler in the church. Lording it over people, exercising dominion. What does he want in his church? He wants people to serve, right? The promise is not just that he will be an adversary to those who want to compete with him to be ruler in the church, but the promise is also that he will work by his grace and spirit to make this attitude prevail in the church, a spirit not of domination and domineering, but a spirit of service. It's a radically different ethic in the church that the Lord Jesus teaches. As that pastor went on to say, in the world, the higher men are, the more they are served, but in Christ's kingdom, the higher men are, the more they serve. And that's what Jesus tells them, that his kingdom is not to be motivated by a desire to rule, but by a dedication to serve. And that if you really want distinction in his kingdom, distinction is found through dedication. That's what he says in this passage. Distinction is found through dedication to serve. What was James and John's request? Make us first and greatest in your kingdom. And What does Jesus say here? You want to be first? You want to be great in the kingdom? Be a servant. Be a servant. Who is the first and the greatest in his kingdom? Verse 43 and 44 tell us. Those who are servants of all. Servants of their fellow Christians. Service of their fellow disciples. That's who's great in the kingdom. And who's first in the kingdom? Those who are slaves to all. It's a radical reversal of how the world sees things, isn't it? Of what the world sees as being first and being greatest because what characterizes servants and slaves they are people whose activities are not directed towards their own interests but towards those of another servants serve a master slaves serve a master they're about their master's business Um, they're about the business of others and that tells us something about the church doesn't it that we're to be about the business of others looking out for the interests of others, putting the interests of others before ourselves, being the slaves of everyone else, being totally controlled what other, by what other people need from us. And why is that dedication to service to be the ethic or the rule of the kingdom? Because it's the ethic and the rule of the king. That's what he's come to do. Right? James and John don't have... The temerity to say, I want to be number one in the kingdom. They're asking to be two and three. Why are they asking to be two and three? They know who's number one. They know who's king in glory, who sits on the throne. It's Jesus. And what does Jesus come to do? Why are all expected to be servants and slaves of one another? Because that's what he's come to do. Right? There's Again, there's a punch there when he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's the argument from the highest. He is the highest. Who is the Son of Man? It's that title that's revealed to us in Daniel 7. He's reminding them, I am the son of man. All peoples and nations are supposed to serve me. There's no one higher. And what do I do when I come? I come not to be served, but to serve. And how does he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. How does he describe service in the kingdom in terms of servants and slaves? And he now says, I've come to serve and I've come to make myself lesser than all the slaves because I've come to set the slaves free. That's what a ransom is. It was the release price of a slave. The price you paid to make a slave free. And that's what the Lord is saying. I've come to give my life to set enslaved people free. It's a reminder to us that we are all by nature slaves. We are in bondage to the devil. We've sold ourselves in slavery to sin, and we can't afford to pay the ransom price that would need to be paid to set ourselves free. And so, what does Jesus come to do? He comes to pay the price that we can't pay the price that sets us free. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves, and he does it by giving up his life. He gave up his life in heaven, exited the Father's glory, entered into man's misery. He suffered all of his life here. Trying to live like one righteous man and and follow the holiness of God in a world that was full of nothing but wickedness and opposition. He gave his life in glory. He entered life in this misery, and his life was a life of suffering every day of his life until he gave his life to die on the cross for sinners. And he gave up his body on the cross, and he gave up his soul. He redeems us from the curse of the law, Paul tells us, by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse there for us, and in that accursedness, in the anguish of his soul, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he do it? Give up life and glory, give up life in this world, body and soul, to set captives free to buy us out of the bondage to the devil so that we could exit the misery of our existence and enter into the glory of his father's household. He's the one who lays down his life to set captives free. And if you believe in him, that's what he's done for you. You are one of the many who've been set free by the gift of the life of the Savior. And if you don't believe in him, he holds out his hand to you and says, if you believe in me, I will set you free too. That's what he's come to do. And what will we do with the freedom that we've been given? We're to use that freedom to follow where he's led. To make his model of service our model of service. And to give our lives for one another. We can't sacrifice in the place of one another or earn the salvation of one another, but we can give our lives to one another. As one person put it, body and soul to the blessed work of making our fellow saints more holy and more happy, to lessen their sorrow and increase their joy. Let us strive to leave God's church better, holier, and happier than it was when we were born. May God give us the grace not to seek to be served, but to serve in light of what our serving Savior has done for us. Amen.